Well, here we go. Walking with lions. The lions of Babylon are prowling all over the earth, seeking anything and anyone to devour. And that's what we began to think about at the early stages in our series. Babylon is on the up. Nebuchadnezzar is the king, the most powerful man in the whole world. And Daniel has been placed by God to serve right under Nebuchadnezzar's nose. And Daniel has been given the task by God. Remember verse 1 of Daniel 1. It was something that happened on earth, but God was in charge in the heavens. God had placed Daniel underneath Nebuchadnezzar's nose. And there Daniel is spending three years studying the literature of the Babylonians. Occult practice, sexual promiscuity and religious prostitution, witchcraft and all other pagan rites. The kind of things we teach our young people not even to think about. God placed his teenager, only a teenager, Daniel, in that place because God has a purpose for him there. And where God has placed us, that's where he has a purpose for us. And uh, if you can't remember any of that, pick up week two uh, of uh, this series, Walking with Lions. It's all on the podcast, forward slash Walking with Lions. You can get it on iTunes if that's what floats you about. This week, though, there goes another one, is our title, and I hope by the end of this morning you'll understand why it's called that. We pick things up then in verse 1 of chapter 2. You'll need your Bible open, if not for this first part, for the second part, and I'll be going so fast by then I won't have time to tell you to get your Bibles open. So Bibles open at Daniel chapter 2, page 800 and something, 884, and we're there in verse 1. So big number 2, chapter 2, little number 1, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. Here is the most powerful man, the most successful man, the most provided for man in the entire world. He owns everything, he rules everything, he's conquered everything, and yet he can't even sleep at night. When it all goes quiet, he's restless and uncertain. When the lights go out, he's very much afraid. For all he had, he's like a little child in the dark. We're forced to face the great deception And the great deception is this, that whatever feeds your identity will also fuel your fear. Whatever feeds your identity will also fuel your fear. And the more your identity is shaped by whatever it is, the greater your insecurity will grow. It's a deception because we think that if we were to have everything, we will be the most content people on earth. Now, intellectually, in our heads, with our knowledge, we know that is not true. But at a heart level, at a belief level, we are all sucked into the lie that if we had everything, then we would have need for nothing, that we'd feel safe and secure. There's a little Nebuchadnezzar in all of us, 
Because the very things we look to to shape our identity turn on us and also cause us to shake in fear. So here we go, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar is gripped with fear by the very things that he thought that he allowed to shape and create his identity. And he's off the scale irrational. Verse 2, so troubled at night that the king summons the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers, basically his diaconate, to tell him what he had dreamed. It was a joke, by the way. Um, When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. That was kind of tongue in cheek. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. Verse 5, the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you don't even tell me what the dream is before I tell you and then interpret the dream that I haven't told you about, I'm going to cut you to pieces. The man's nuts. Totally irrational. Meet the dictator 101. He's so not at peace with himself that he cannot possibly understand or manage to be at peace with others. So basically, verse 12, they go, well, we can't do that. And the king was furious, which seems quite reasonable. And he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Madness. Why is he in such a bad mood? Have you ever wondered that about someone? Why are they in such a bad mood? Because their rugby team lost, yes. (laughs) You think you're funny, don't you, Chris? Yeah, we were gutted. Just goes to show that the world's unfair, unjust. (laughs) That good people suffer while evil triumphs. (laughs) Why is Nebuchadnezzar so mad? What's made him so angry? He is discovering the great deception. He is discovering for himself that he has been deceived. He's discovering that the very thing that he thought would make him secure is now the very thing that's making him afraid. You see, once I'm king, and once I've conquered the world, I'll be at peace. But he wasn't. Duped and deceived, and now he's angry as the truth hits home. It's an obvious reality, but it's hard to spot when it's in our own lives. If being king is what brought identity to Nebuchadnezzar, brought him purpose and meaning, then Nebuchadnezzar lives with the fear that one day he might not be king. And his identity, that which makes him who he is, will be lost. If Nebuchadnezzar's identity was shaped by the fact that he led the empire that ruled the world then he lives with the fear that one day his um, empire will no longer rule. And that which makes him who he is will be lost. Similarly, if having money shapes your identity, you are fearful about not having enough. It's one of the reasons people with buckets of money need buckets more money. If having something new 
gives you a sense of identity, a sense of who you are, then you fear it breaking, getting dirty, scratched or lost or just not being new anymore. Because your identity is is locked in with those things. And if those things are taken away, you lose something of who you are. If your job gives you your primary sense of who you are, then it will be devastating when you lose that job or you are forced to retire. It can be anything. If your identity is fed by the way that you look, by looking good, by looking right, you fear the day when you will not look so good. And let's be honest, most of us in this room are on the downturn. (laughs) You guys there, stand up, look at each other, and say, we're looking better every day. (laughs) Go on. That's it. You sit down, the rest of you stand up, turn to the person next to you, and say, I'm very sorry, but it's all over. These are very powerful forces that are at work in our lives because they shape our identity and our identity is the core of who we are and that's why we attach such weight to it. That's why if you have not got your makeup on, you might not answer the door. You'd rather hide behind the sofa in case someone sees you without your face painted and the women struggle with that as well. It's why when people lose their jobs, there is a massive financial struggle and implication, but that is nowhere near the hardest thing that they have to cope with, is it not? Anyone know what I'm talking about? These issues of identity, they are powerful, really powerful. And fear is at work all of the time, because if we lose that which makes me me, if I lose it somehow, some way, I fear that I will lose my very self. And it's really, really tough for young people. And they're trying to shape their identity, but there are massive fears at work, pushing and pulling as they try and forge and understand who they are. Joel posted a vlog last week, and he says it much better than I can about our young people. I'm worried. I'm worried for our generation, and this is why. We keep getting told that we are the leaders of tomorrow's world, and that scares me, because we feel like we have to fit into society's way of living and to its way of life. Society judges people who stand out. Over half of the teenagers in the UK get bullied. Girls are targeted more than boys for their looks, but boys are targeted, targeted but in few numbers for the same quality. Over 16,000 teenagers miss school every single day because of being bullied. That is outrageous. I think missing education because you're being bullied. And you guys might ask, why do people bully other people? Well, they bully other people because they feel that they don't fit into society. And the only way they're going to fit in is if they take other people down. And that is not right. How has society come to let this happen? Did you know nearly half the girls between the age of 7 and 12 want to be slimmer? They feel like they need to be slimmer even when they're not fat. 
because society says that is what a perfect woman is and that's not right people should feel like they belong in their own bodies and they shouldn't feel like they don't belong because of what society is telling them nearly 80,000 children and young people in the UK suffer from depression that is the O2 filled four times over that is ridiculous and yeah fair enough okay not all of it is because of people getting judged but some of it is people judging other people and they get depressed because they feel like they don't belong in their own body and that that's just not right that shouldn't be allowed also one in 12 children and teenagers in the UK self-harm and that's ridiculous to me people feel like they have to cut because they don't feel like they have to fit in I'm not sure about you, but for me, that is outrageous. I don't get how this has happened. Also, teenagers and children wear and listen to music they don't want to listen to, but they do it to feel like they fit in. They feel uncomfortable in what they are wearing, only so they feel like they can fit in. That is not right. Why is society judging people on what they wear and what music they listen to? We should be judging people on how they act to people, if they bully people. We shouldn't be judging people on what they wear and the type of music they listen to. And if you don't listen to the right type of music and wear about clothes you get laughed at you get laughed at from not listening to that music everyone else listens to why is society telling us to do this this is not right in school if you are smart you get called a nerd but if you're dumb you get called a retard how is that right which one does society want us to be because either way you get laughed at and that's not right i am confused by that i know you guys probably wondering why this happened and i will tell you why this happens this is why it happens society tells us we need to be this way we need to wear these clothes we need to wear this type of music and everything else should be laughed at. You shouldn't be anything else. But here's something for you. Society and the media is telling us to be free in who we are and express who we are. But how can we? Because when we do it, we get laughed at. How does that work? I don't want this generation to be like this. And I probably think you guys don't. We can change this, but it starts right here, right now. It starts with me and you. We can change those figures if we stop judging and let people be who they are. We can change it, but it starts right now, right here with you and me. And are you going to change? whatever it is that you need to sustain your identity this is who I am because I have this job because I wear this brand because I look this way I own this stuff I live in this place I drive this car is actually fueling our insecurity that's the great deception Because we all know deep down somewhere that a day will come when we will lose those things. And our very identity will be under threat. And when those things are gone, we'll look around and wonder who on earth we are. When Daniel eventually interprets the dream... Nebuchadnezzar, I think, understood the dream. That's why he was so anxious all night. Daniel sums it up in two haunting words. After you. After you. You will lose the very things that you believe you need in order to be who you are. After you, Nebuchadnezzar, there will be another king. There will be another empire. That which you thought made you, you will be stripped away. And who will you be then? Will the real Nebuchadnezzar please stand up? Rather than the night bringing comfort, it was a terrifying revelation of the truth. The great deception. Whatever feeds 
your identity will fuel your fears. And that's why he was furious. And that's why there's a level of frustration, of angst, of anger in all of us. So what are you afraid of losing? What are you afraid of losing? You can't answer it too quickly. This is a question for your communities. What are you afraid of losing? Because it tells you something about where you think your identity is coming from. It tells you something about what you think you need to be who you are. Imagine though, for a minute, blue sky thinking... Imagine though for a minute, if you could get your identity from something or from somewhere that you could never lose. Now there's a thought, and we'll come back to that. Ourselves aside then, we live in a world where people are restless, paranoid, panicked, anxious and uncertain. And notice that Nebuchadnezzar had the whole world at his disposal, but he could not find anybody to help The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks, verse 10. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked that's a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. The whole world cannot help as we face the reality of the great deception. Enter Daniel. Big cheer. Hmm. Hmm. Yes. And as Daniel takes center stage, or at least God takes center stage through Daniel, we get what comes next, the great declaration. That there is a God who can help us. Verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There is a God who can make sense of it. There is a God who can help us. God who has something to say to the cycle of fear and panic. A God who has something to say to us when our identity is based on something we know will pass away. When we're all caught up in the here and now and we know that one day it will be swept aside and we fear that day because we know if if that goes then it feels like I go with it because I'm locked into it. It makes sense of who I am. Daniel steps in and brings God's message. He brings God's message, why? To save the magicians, if you read it, and the enchanters, and Nebuchadnezzar too, if he's prepared to listen to the message. Because this is a message that can save everybody. This is gospel, right in Daniel chapter 2. And we have the same message to declare to our world that's trying to make sense of its own identity, our world that's restless and anxious because we see our identity is locked into things that one day will pass away and quite frankly we're terrified about it. How did Daniel speak into his world? And as we take a little aside for a few moments and think about how we might mimic Daniel and speak into our world that there is a God who can help with this fundamental crisis of identity that afflicts the human race. Firstly, uh, Daniel spoke with wisdom. Verse 14. 
Arioch, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Daniel, of Babylon, Daniel screamed at him angrily and cross and said, how dare you do that? Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Oh, for some evangelists with wisdom and tact. All the evangelists are laughing nervously. The actual word means taste, root word taste, wisdom and tact, root word taste, means that Daniel had this ability, this spiritual ability to taste the situation, to really feel it, you know, an intuitive sense, a spiritual sense of really getting what's actually going on. You know, some of us can think of about two or three occasions in the whole of our lives when we've actually understood what was going on. But in this moment, Daniel has wisdom to really get what all the nuances, the the subtleties, what would be the, the right thing to say. A bit like when Jesus was at the well and he could see what was going on and he said to the woman, yeah, I know you've got five husbands and the one man you're not with now is not your husband and so on. A, a, a perfect word, the right word at the right time. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Proverbs talks about that, a great joy in giving an apt reply. How good is a timely word? Daniel spoke with wisdom. He had the right word at the right time. Similar vein, Paul talks about, let your conversations be full of grace and always seasoned with salt. Timely words, carefully chosen words, rich words, purposeful words. The right words at the right time. But hold that thought for a moment. Daniel communicated his message, right word at the right time. But notice the very next comment about Daniel in verse 17. He goes straight to his community. Daniel returned to his house, they were living in community, and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And what did they do together as a community? Read it, verse 18. They prayed together. They prayed together. So so Daniel... He has a word in season that comes out of being together with his community and praying together. Can you imagine like a community that was committed to mission and praying and supporting one another? They might call that a missional community. Imagine that. But there it is, right in Daniel. Here we go. He's with his community. He brings back the need and they pray together and he has wisdom and understanding to bring this word in season, this timely message. Tuesday lunchtime was brilliant here in church when we got together to pray as part of this last week. And we were thinking about who are the people that we have a message for. Daniel had a message for Nebuchadnezzar. Who do you have a message for? And Claire made us stop and think about those people and ask God for a word or a phrase that helped us understand what that person would need. So we would have wisdom about what the person that we have a message for needs, how we might communicate it, whether it's something to do with wisdom for their lives or purpose or relation, whatever it might be. And then as a community, we prayed together. We actually lived out these verses in Daniel chapter 2, something like 2,600 years later here in Ipswich, just um, northwest of Babylon. So... Who are you praying with for a word in season for those where God has placed you? Who do you have a message for? And as you pray with your community, what is the word, the timely word, the right word that God's giving you for the person that you're praying for, for the message that you have? So Daniel knows what to say. He knows the word in season and he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it's a picture of the great destiny. 
The great destiny that reminds us that there is a kingdom identity that we can never lose. A kingdom identity that we can never lose. And Daniel interprets the dream. The dream was of a statue that depicted the four great empires, starting with Babylon, that would rule the world until the time of Christ. Verse 31 tells us about it. Your majesty looked... And there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and then it goes on. And Daniel explains in verse 38 to 40 what it means. Here we go. Uh, That the gold was the Babylonian empire, and then there would be three other empires that would follow up until the time of Christ. So these different, these different um, kind of metals, if you like, these different materials, starting with gold, right, right down to iron at the bottom. Babylonian Empire was followed by the Peds and Mersh, uh, sorry, the Medes and Persians Empire, followed by the Greek Empire, followed by the Roman Empire that takes us right up to the time of Christ. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over all things. You are the head, that of gold. 39, after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, verse 40, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Notice what is said about the kingdoms. We think that the kings of this world get stronger and better, more technological, more sophisticated, more able to conquer the world. God's verdict on the kingdoms of this world is that they become more corrupt and more corrupt. Another kingdom will come inferior to yours. There is a downward spiral as we struggle as a whole world to understand our identity outside of Christ. We're weaker than we think. Notice also verse 35, how all the kingdoms will end up. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. Everything that you look to, to give you your identity, Everything that you look to for purpose and meaning will end up as chaff on the floor and will be poof, blown away in the wind. It's a bit like Jesus saying, do not store up treasures on earth where the moths will come and the thieves will steal. Because it will end nowhere. Everything that you are banking on, trusting in, relying upon will become like chaff. This is gospel. Right in the heart of the Old Testament. But it gets better. It does. Hello? Verse 35, look at the end. But the rock, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. You making the connections? You making the connections? Look at verse 44. In the time of those kings, that's the time of the Roman Empire, 
In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. So what have you got? You've got a small, you've got a massive statue and a small stone that looks obscure, ineffectual, insignificant, a small rock that will amount to nothing, that will smash and crush every statue, every kingdom of the earth. Small and obscure. I'm thinking of a peasant family having a baby in the backwater of an empire. Small and obscure. I'm thinking of a manger and a stable and swaddling bands. Something made not by human hands, says verse 34, I think it is. And as John would put it years later, born not of natural descent, nor of a husband's decision, sorry, a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That small significant rock will crush the kingdoms of the earth and establish a kingdom that will never end. Who's the rock? Jesus. Daniel is preaching the gospel. 600 years before Jesus to a pagan emperor. People say the Bible doesn't make sense. It's because the Muppets have never read it. It's all there on every single page. The Old Testament verses talk about the stone and the rock. And in the New Testament, those verses are gathered together to confirm that they talk about Jesus. Peter would later write, quoting Old Testament verses about stones and rocks. Now to you who believe this stone, what started off as a little insignificant stone, is so very precious, isn't it? But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Peter preached about it in Acts. He says, Jesus is that very stone that you builders have rejected, you muppets, because it's the cornerstone. Sums up exactly what Daniel is saying. Salvation is found in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That was the huge confidence of Daniel. If you want to understand why Daniel was able to do what he was able to do was because he knew, and there's a play on words with the phrase, in the time of those kings, it was, it had already started in the journey that was starting with the Babylonian Empire that would end up with the Roman Empire out of which the stone would come. Something Daniel understood had already started. A new kingdom was already coming and he was part of that new kingdom. Didn't matter what Nebuchadnezzar said, how he behaved or what he did. Ultimately, Daniel was bold and courageous because he knew he was part of the winning team. He knew he was on the right side. He knew that as the kingdoms came and went, and they would, even in Daniel's lifetime, God's kingdom would grow from a small beginning to become a mountain, as it says, whatever verse that was, that fills the whole of the earth. The glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. In the time of those kings, the real kingdom is with us. The real kingdom is within us. The great destiny is ours. Ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar missed the point. Verse 46. He was amazed by what had happened and he fell prostrate before Daniel. 
and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to, to him. What a dummy. What a dummy. He transferred his identity from being the king of the kingdoms to a young teenager named Daniel. That's how desperate we are to try and work out who we are and pin ourselves to something or to someone. He bowed down to Daniel. If you're trusting in anyone or anything other than Jesus, you've missed the point. If you're bowing down to anyone or anything other than Jesus, you've lost the plot. If you're putting your identity in anyone or anything other than Jesus, whose kingdom has come and is coming and will last forevermore, you're stuffed because your identity is rooted in something that you will definitely lose. And like Nebuchadnezzar, when you realize that truth, it becomes quite hard to sleep at night. Trust Jesus with your identity. Trust Jesus with your destiny. Are you trusting him? Are you trusting him? There is a kingdom identity that you can never lose. Let's pray.